Time from Beyonce. And this particular song was chosen by my guest, a remarkable young woman who has a remarkable story. Destined to become one of New Zealand's leading female tennis players. On September 27th, 2008, while playing a game of tennis, her arm would break while trying to serve. It had later been diagnosed that she had bone cancer and that if she was to survive and if she was to live through this, she would need to get her arm amputated. And you can imagine the psychological blow that must have been for someone who had put so much of their life into wanting to be the very best she could be at her chosen sport of tennis. But through trial and tribulation and the support of her family and medical staff, she decided to channel her energies into another sport. And to me, it's one of the hardest sports in the world to master, and that is the sport of swimming. Because swimming, it's like golf. You can play all the golf in the world you want, but unless you've got a good swing, you'll never shoot a low score, and swimming's the same. Unless technically you are good, you will never be a quick swimmer. You might end up being a fit swimmer. What makes the story even more remarkable, Butterfly became her specialist event. She would rise quickly through the ranks of para swimming in this country and was selected to represent New Zealand at the Olympic Games of the Paralympics in Rio. Her name is Brile McPherson. She joins me in studio. Brile, welcome. Lovely to see you. You're looking fantastic. Thank you very much. How difficult has it been over, say, the last 10 years since you were diagnosed with cancer back in 2008? It was obviously a very life-changing event. I mean, you... I was 19 at the time when it happened, and I had set myself up for the, the dream of becoming a professional tennis player, and I obviously never expected, especially being so healthy and so fit, to be told that I had cancer at 19 years old, especially bone cancer. And I remember when I was playing the game that I was, it was actually a very good game. I was, I was winning. I was six love in the first set, five love serving 40 love and tossed the ball up and I didn't even hit the ball and my arm broke. And we actually thought that, I mean, before all of this happened, that we would never have expected any of this. And so when I did break the arm, the, the pain was so immense that I just, I blacked out on court. And every, when I did come back to consciousness, my, my, my team manager, my mom and my dad were all there and they were all like trying to figure out like, well, what's wrong with her arm? Like, has she dislocated her shoulder because she's in so much pain? So then I got rushed to the ED and it was there that they did a scan on me, an x-ray, and there was a break in the bone. And then the, the doctor actually asked my mom, how did she break the bone? And he asked. He specifically asked this because normally when you break your bone, it's on contact, like really hard forced contact. And when my mum said she was just playing a game of tennis, she didn't even hit the ball. And they said, okay, we're going to have to send her to the hospital because this is a lot more serious than we, than we suspect it is. And my mum, out of fear, the first, her first reaction was, no, put her in a cast. She's broken her arm. How is like, why, why does she need to go to the hospital? And the doctor said, because of the suspicious circumstances of the break, that she, that we do need to do some further tests. Did you have any symptoms prior to this that possibly would suggest that something wasn't right? Did you feel tired? Did you feel fatigued? Did you feel sick at any point? When you look back now, were there any sort of maybe precursors, warnings that you just didn't pick up like most of us just 
would tend to probably just go, oh, no, she'll be right. Absolutely. Actually, a month leading up to the break, I had uh, lost um, like a dramatic amount of weight. <laughs> um, being... But you just put that down to good old-fashioned work ethic and fitness. Exactly. Like I'd always been a healthy person and maybe it was also like, you know, me coming of age, hormones. Mum had told me that like when she was the same age that she had like gone through like, you know, a massive like drop in weight and she was becoming more a woman and she was growing into her body and all that baby fat was going away. So maybe that's what we put it down to. But then I kept having pains in my arm where the break was. And we didn't think anything of it. Because so, you're playing tennis and the forehand, backhand exactly. could just simply be tendonitis. Exactly. So that's what we put it down to is just um, tendonitis or just an overuse of the muscle in that area. And I went to the chiropractor and, you know, they would, you know, massage it out, do like put the needles in there and it'd be okay for about a, about three days. And then the pain would come back again. And then then we went to the doctor and they said, oh, no, it's just growing pains. But little did we know at that point. So, so no blood tests, almost misdiagnosed. Yeah, almost misdiagnosed. Uh, are, you, are you resentful of that? I am very resentful of that. And I'm also like, it, it's still to this day, it makes me, it, it does make me upset that um, that they didn't think to do any blood tests because they because they put it down to just, oh, she's just growing. Mm. That's literally what they thought. They were, I was just growing. Okay, so you break your arm. The doctor finds out how you broke it. So there's mm-hmm. obviously no contact here. There's got to be something going on. There's got to be something a bit more serious. So you go from ED, what, and you're checked into hospital, are you? Yeah. So I'm in the emergency department, and that's when they start doing the scans. They do the X-ray. They do the CT, the MRI, and the blood tests. And at that point, we were just hoping that it was nothing serious, like it was just an infection. And um, <laughs> on the Monday... When um when I, I I was actually up in the up in the ward at the stage and um the a, a doctor comes in a little did I know he was actually the specialist a bone cancer specialist he comes in and he's got his team around him Take and your I, time and I'm all alone in this hospital room I'm just by myself and I still remember it was like six thirty in the morning and I'm just lying there looking up at these at this doctor and his team. And I'm thinking, what is he doing here? Like, he's just told me he's the bone cancer specialist. I don't have cancer. And I just kept, I just kept thinking to myself, like, no, this isn't happening. Like, I can't have cancer. I've, I've been healthy my whole life. Like, how can this happen to me? And, well, he said to me, like, there's just, there's a likely chance that you do have bone cancer because of the circumstances in which you've broken your arm. You know, there's just no contact to the arm. So we're going to go and do a biopsy. And, you know, he, he gave me the statistics, like, at this point in time, not many people are lucky enough to be in your position where we've possibly found the cancer early. So the irony is here that the tennis probably saved your life. Exactly. And that's why that I can't. Because particular movement. Yeah. And I just can't give it up. I love it too much. <laughs> I love the people that I get to work with. I mean, the tennis community is just absolutely amazing. They're a great group of people. And I really truly believe that I'm the person that I, I am. The reason I am the person I am today is partly because of my tennis family. So you're lying there and suddenly the thought that you potentially could have cancer enters your head. I mean, for me, if that was me, the first thing I'd be thinking is I'm going to die. Exactly. That's exactly what I thought. And I thought. think most people would do the yeah. same. Yeah, that's a, that's one of the first things I thought I'm going to die because I'd never met anybody who's actually survived cancer. 
And every time I'd seen a movie with cancer in it, the person dies. Every time I'd read a story in a magazine, that person dies. All I thought was, I'm, I'm going to be one of the statistics again. Like, I'm going to be that person that, oh, she had cancer, but she died from it. And the second thought was, I'm the only child. My mum and dad, I don't know how they're going to survive if, if I don't live through this. So that was an immediate thought too. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely. a very generous thought to immediately yeah. think about your parents, yeah. their only child. Mm-hmm. Where were mum and dad through all of this? When did they find out? They found out about an hour later, so they um, they rushed over to the hospital and actually the cancer nurse was there with me the whole time because I just, I did not know how to put into words. I did not know how to tell them, I've got cancer, I might have cancer. And so the cancer nurse was there with me and I remember my mum and dad walking in and my mum, she looked over at me and I was like, I don't know how to say this, but... I think I've got cancer. <laughs> and obviously, you know, as a mother to like your only child, she had done everything that she in her book she had done everything right. And then at the moment in, in that moment when your daughter tells you that she's got cancer, your only child, she was obviously very upset and it was the first time that I'd actually seen her like swear to God. <laughs> Because she, she she is a religious person and she believes in God and she's instilled that in me as well. But in that moment, she she looked up to the sky and she goes, my God, why? Why her? What were, uh, what, once it had been confirmed in terms of treatments, in terms of giving you the best chance of survival, what was the initial diagnosis there? What were you initially told? I was initially told that I did have bone cancer and that if I wanted to survive, that I would probably have to get the arm amputated. But because you are aspiring to, you're, you've got a scholarship that you're about to go off to, we'll do our best to save the arm. So we'll put you under chemotherapy treatment. So you had a, you had chemo? Yeah, I had about four cycles of that. That was about oh, over, over a three-month so period. period. Over a three-month period. Over a three-month period. And... I mean, every time we went in for those those like those CT scans and the bone scans, it just kept showing that the cancer just was not shrinking. In fact, the cancer was so aggressive that it was growing, and I was under really toxic chemotherapy at that time. In terms of your mental health, were you trying to stay as positive as possible? Were you trying to stay fit? Did you still believe that you'd have a tennis career on the other side, that somehow you get through this? Absolutely. I think that's the one thing that really got me through all of this is just my positivity. And I I don't know where it comes from. It might be from the fact that I was a tennis player and you, you never say die. You know, you, it's it's almost that mentality of like, okay, I might be down one set, but I'll come back in the second set and win the third set. Like, it's not over until it's over. Like, even when you're down a match point, you can still save the game and come back and win it. And I think... Part of that mentality, that positivity came from that, that fighting spirit that I I got from playing tennis since I, since I was so young and um, and the people around me. Take me through the moment when suddenly the doctors told you that, look, the chemotherapy is not working. Mm-hmm. Your best chance of survival is having your arm amputated, your right arm, your forehand arm. Mm-hmm your serving arm would have to come off. You would not ever be able to play tennis like you did again. 
take us through that. It was devastating. I I just remember thinking I was it was almost like a 50-50, do I want to lose my dominant right arm, the one that has that has pretty much 90% of my shots, my forehand, part of my backhand, my smash, my serve, all of those shots that I loved playing so much that was probably was pretty much my strength in tennis. It was those shots that I had and they were all on my right arm and I mean, I'd had that three-month period to process it, like think that this if this doesn't work, you're probably going to lose your arm to this. But in that moment when I thought that, oh, I won't be able to play tennis, I thought to myself, but hey, I'm going to be alive. If I take this arm off, the doctors have told me, if I remove the arm, I've got a 95% chance of the cancer not coming back. That is a hell of a lot better than a... 50-50 chance of the cancer would come back if I don't remove the arm. As a 19-year-old, how much say do you have in terms of saying, yes, let's have the operation, I'm happy for you to amputate my arm, I want to live here? It was all my decision because in the eye of, in the, the eye of the law, when you're 18, you're an adult, you're independent, you make your own decisions. Mm. So I was 19, it was all my decision. My parents never had a say in it. Prior to taking you into theatre, prior to take this operation, which would change your physical appearance mm-hmm. for the rest of your life mm-hmm. and probably change the direction of your life, mm-hmm. um, how do you deal with it? How do you cope with that? I mean, what are you thinking about the other side from when you wake up? Um, well, I, the the obviously that night, the night before <laughs> the operation, I didn't sleep very well. Didn't sleep at all. I was I was more frightened that. That again, that I wouldn't make it through the surgery because this is a big surgery, having a whole arm taken off. So it was a dangerous surgery as well? It was a dangerous surgery. It was because not many people had actually gone through the surgery. I mean, they'd had like maybe fingers or maybe the wrist taken off. And this was from the shoulder down, wasn't it? Exactly. Very high up on the arm. Very high up on the arm, right at the shoulder joint. And this was a very high-risk surgery. And I know my parents were frightened about it. I was scared. I I was scared to death. And I was just like, that night, I just kept praying, please, God, just let me make it through this. Like, you've given, the, there's, there's, there must be a reason why I, that you, that you, you know, we broke my, I broke my arm during a tennis match. And I've been one of the lucky ones to have found the cancer so early. What was your biggest fear about losing your arm, though? Outside of, I mean, tennis and stuff, it's, it's you know, it's sport, it's relatively trivial mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things. As you said, you're the only child. You know, you're the world to your parents, but what, what what did you fear the most? Not being physically attractive. I mean, especially as a girl, you, like from a very young age, we see it in the media that the attractive woman, the, the attractive ladies are the ones who've got full body. They've got four, they've got two arms and two legs. You know, they're full, they're full bodied, they're able bodied. And for me, that fear there was that I wasn't going to be physically attractive anymore because, I don't know, it was just um, it was just a moment of, um, I'd always, my mum had always told me that, like, you're beautiful on the inside and the outside. And I'd always been like, yeah, okay, but, you know, you have your friends and you have your influences at high school and you always, like, see through, like, magazines and the media. 
the most beautiful woman. And, and you, you, you went through Baradine, didn't you? <laughs> yes, I did. And, and you had yep. plenty of friends there supporting you. Absolutely, they yep. were they were fantastic. Like I like if any of the, if any of you girls are listening, I love you guys so much. <laughs> You've been absolutely amazing. <laughs> and, and so you get through the surgery. You wake up. You come off the uh, sedation. And at some point, I guess, the bandages have got to come off mm. and you've then got to take a look in the mirror mm-hmm. and look at your physical appearance yeah, and how you're going to appear from that day forward. It was very hard. Um, the doctor came in about three days after the amputation and he said, okay, it's time for us to change the bandages. So I'm going to actually take this opportunity for you to... Um, have a look at yourself because this is this is who you are now. And I remember uh, walking towards the bathroom and thankfully mum was there with me. She was there with me every step of the way. And in fact, I the mirror was right by the right in the direction of the door, but I had purposely got turned sideways so that I couldn't see the the non-existent arm anymore. And it took me about 30 seconds before I was like, okay, breathe in and out. <laughs> and let's just like, let's just, you know, take the dive, turn around and have a look at the mirror. And as soon as I did that, I just started crying. And I was looking at mum through the mirror and I said, who's going to find me attractive? <laughs> I remember that moment so vividly like it happened yesterday. And I'm not angry at myself for feeling that way because of course you're going to feel a little bit insecure about how you look, especially when it's been 19 years, you know, full like uh, with with four limbs and then to have that just taken away overnight. But that all changed very quickly. That I that um that moment when I had that oh, who's going to find me attractive to well, at least I'm alive. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to Veach on Sport. Just a couple of updates in sport going on at the moment. The World Softball Championships underway. The Black Sox leading Australia in their quarterfinal 4-1 and the Blues in action against the Sun Wolves. They currently lead 14 points to 5 in Tokyo. A pretty emotional hour, I've got to say. It's been very moving and it's been hard to try and keep it together. Uh, Brian McPherson is my guest in studio. She was a promising tennis player who discovered um, while playing tennis that she had bone cancer and to save her life she had to have her right arm removed as you can imagine uh, the trauma for a 19 year old girl uh, wondering whether life would ever be the same Brile you get through the surgery you've accepted the fact that you've lost your right arm through a heap of support from family and friends um, but what part did the medical staff play in all of this too in terms of that transition? Because sometimes, you know, often in the media we only hear about the bad things that go on in hospitals and people just tend to jump up and down about the little things that often don't go their way. The medical team was actually fantastic. They, um, from the beginning, actually when I was going through chemotherapy, they had been there with me every step of the way. Um, my liaison nurse at the time, Heidi Watson, was fantastic. She was one of the ladies that actually was there with me. She actually, she was actually working through Canteen at the time. And um, she she kept me going, actually. And, you know, she asked me, do you have any aspirations? Like, you don't, you don't have the tennis now, but um, do you still want to be a professional athlete? And I said, absolutely. And this was during my chemotherapy, like after I had the arm amputated, the arm taken off. And 
<laughs> actually in the last uh, the last day, which was the last cycle of chemotherapy, she brought in a pamphlet from the New Zealand Herald, and it was um it was about the try try out try it out day at Paralympics. <laughs> so you had your your choices between a track and field, cycling, and swimming, and um and I was still a bit like oh I don't know if I I don't know if uh, this is for me, but I will give it a go. Let's see how it goes. And um, and it wasn't until actually uh, about the the night that I actually got home when I was um, when I was actually um, the, when I'd been released from the hospital after my last cycle of chemo, and I came home, turned on the TV, and it was sports news. And this was during like the Olympics period, but the Olympics had already been done. It was actually during the Paralympics period, but I had no idea about the Paralympics at that point. And um, the highlight was Sophie Pascoe swimming into the the wall again for a third gold medal. And I was looking at her and I was like, oh, she doesn't have a disability. She's got two arms. She's getting out of the pool on on like one leg. And it wasn't until she turned around and I was like, oh, wow, she's got a leg and a half. <laughs> and that's when I thought, this is really cool. Like maybe I could do that. So... I mean, Sophie, thank you. You are so inspirational and motivating. You are still my swimming icon. And um, I look up to her a lot. She is like, um, I mean, she's now one of my, my good friends. <laughs> I, I've, got to, I've got to say, though, you choose swimming. Now, mm. former national swim coach Mark Bones listening to this because he's just texts me. And um, I often come on this program and say, of all the sports I've experienced, I think swimming is the toughest. It is yeah. just brutal. I mean, you know, if you want to be an elite swimmer, most kids are elite athletes from the age of 10 or 11. Did you have any idea about what you'll get yourself into? I mean, the sheer volume of work required, the regime. The looking at the tiles, the mental toughness. No idea. All I saw was, oh, Sophie Pascoe had just gone three gold medals at the Paralympics. This might be a cool idea. And then it wasn't until I actually was selected to be on the team, and then the 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 hard work actually started. And at that point, I was doing fourteen hours in the pool, so that was like two hours a day, two to four hours in the pool a day, plus maybe three and a half hours in the gym. And you're right. The, You'd never the swum before, and I had that's never... suddenly the sort of volume that you're having to do. Exactly. And, and <laughs> in terms of determining your stroke, because, I mean, okay, mm. you, you've got one arm, but you mm. can still do freestyle one arm. Mm. Um, breaststroke probably not as natural. What was the appeal of butterfly? For me, the appeal of butterfly was that it had the same motion um, as almost like doing a body roll. And I've got a, a background. I've got a background in hip hop dancing. So to me, it was only natural to be going into something that looked like, oh, that looks like a that looks like a body roll. And <laughs> I I'd could imagine, do that. And I'd imagine you'd have great core strength too. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was that was obviously from all the training that I had done as a tennis player. So that really fed into a good basis. Uh, and I'd imagine too that. You know, um, like I say, I'll say to people, try and do a length of butterfly. It's an mm. oxymoron. You cannot do easy butterfly. No. Uh, but I also imagine, too, you suddenly say, well, okay, I've got two legs here. Mm. Let's utilize that. A lot of power comes out of the legs. Exactly. And probably of all the strokes, mm. butterfly, probably the most conducive. Yep, it absolutely is. And especially for me, I've got that that leg power because I was a tennis player. And obviously a lot of that strength comes from like, you know, keeping low on the ground and you always use your legs to power through the serve. So it made a lot of sense. It just kind of, it actually kind of just related in a very strange way that everything mm. that I had done as a tennis player was like a basis for me to go into becoming mm. 
a butterfly specialist. <laughs> you, you were used to being a great tennis player, a good tennis player. Mm-hmm. You know, probably, um, you know, when you were at school, all the awards. Yeah. Um, Brian McPherson, the tennis player. Mm-hmm. But having to start from scratch, mm. having to teach yourself a completely new skill set and being around athletes who had already a who were already accomplished. I mean, was that off-putting? Did that deter you at any point? It deterred me a little bit at the beginning because, I mean, firstly, when I had my first um, national Paralympic competition, it was in Wellington, it was the para-nationals, and that's only for, like, the Kiwi, the the New Zealand para-swimmers or para-athletes. And that was the first time I actually met Sophie, the girl that I had seen on the TV. So I was a bit starstruck, actually, when I first met her. Um, I was sitting in the lobby, got ready, um, ready to go do one of my heats, my morning sessions, and she just came down and sat beside me. And she goes, "Hi, I'm Sophie. What's your name?" And I'm just like, "I'm Brile." <laughs> like, oh my god, oh, I can't I'm terrified. Be- I'm so scared right now. I can't believe we're talking to each other. <laughs> but she was so, so lovely about it. And in that moment, I mean, if anyone was like, I was obviously a little bit like quite starstruck and intimidated by. The fact that I was in the same room and same and talking to Sophie, but after that, nothing really deterred me. I felt, I felt great actually. I actually felt very inspired by her, and it was actually really nice to meet someone who had been to so many Paralympic games, who had so many international like medals and world records behind her, and she was a lovely down to earth person. And I was just like, thank goodness for that because that's exactly what I needed to keep me motivated to continue along my pathway to become a Paralympic swimmer. Who was coaching you at this point? Uh, Glenn Hamblin. And where was Glenn based out of? Uh, Mount Eden, Laser Mount Eden. Did he see something in you? He obviously did. <laughs> but um, there, does, there does come a point sometimes in your career where you reach a point and you feel that there's just something missing. And he had done a fantastic job. He had taken me to national level. But I wanted to go into that international level. So that's when I made the decision in 2012 when I had missed out on London that I was that I needed to make a change. I mean, you're always tired on the pool. I have a saying that you always knew when you're overtraining when you meet more than three bastards in a day. <laughs> Did you suddenly become a bit grumpy? Yep. Your parents were probably going, <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing? Where's our lovely girl yeah, gone? Yeah, that's exactly how it was. They were, they were, I was getting burnt out. I was training so hard. It was like this was a totally different training regime that I had been used to as a tennis player. It, it, the thing is in sport, though, in endurance sport, the harder you train, often the more bad days you have. Um, you know, you'd already been through enough. Mm-hmm. It must have been some days where you just thought, just give up. I'm yep. just a loser. I can't do this. I just can't do this. Mm-hmm. What what other curveballs can you throw me, life? Um, well, I later on found out that I had a um, an underlying heart condition, which I was not aware of, which had actually occurred through chemotherapy because the chemo had damaged my heart. So I had an underlying heart condition, which had pretty much stalled me for the whole, for about a year or two years, and that um, prevented me from actually being able to train properly. It kept me out of the pool for a long time. And then in 2013, my dad had a minor heart attack and he had to go through a double bypass. So I'm still trying to compete and train hard, but all these mental aspects behind the scenes, you know, with like with these serious health issues happening behind the scenes, 
it really made me question, did I really want to do this? Because it feels like I just can't take a break. So what made you continue? What Was there one key person? Was there one key trigger that just forced you to battle through this no matter what? Mm-hmm. It was it was a combination of the people that I'd met through Canteen. Um, I had lost one of my best friends through cancer who had the same cancer as me in the same arm. And she and they didn't survive. And she, she didn't, didn't survive. survive. How tough was that? That was so tough. I remember when I got the phone call, actually, and I, I dropped the phone on the ground because I was in shock. I mean, I knew were, she were was sick. Were you in sick. hospital together? Yes. Yeah. So you survived she was, and she I didn't. I survived and she didn't. And that was another hard thing for me to accept. You know, that was another another curveball thrown at me. <laughs> so getting back in the pool, getting through the hard stuff. Mm-hmm. That was about honouring her as much as anything? Absolutely, and it still is to this day. Okay, our Spotlight Hour is the story of a remarkable young woman by the name of Brian McPherson, who was one of New Zealand's leading tennis players. And then back in 2008, September 27th, while playing tennis, she broke her arm, rushed to hospital. They realised there was something quite serious going on. She was diagnosed with bone cancer. And for her greatest chance of survival meant that she would have to have her right arm amputated. Through trials and tribulations, she was introduced to the Paralympic community and inspired by Sophie Pascoe, decided that swimming was going to be the focus for her to allow her to put her energy back into sport. Sport had been such a big part of her life. Brian, we were talking about the difficulty of swimming and a lot of other difficulties that were going on in your life. Um, your father, heart issues, um, a friend of yours who was in hospital at the same time, not surviving the same illness, not surviving the same disease. When did the breakthrough come on the pool? When did you suddenly realise, hey, perhaps I can do this, I'm knocking on the door of Paralympic qualification? Well, in 2014, my mum was diagnosed with breast cancer. And again, another curveball hit me. And... I just kept thinking to myself, when am I going to get a break? Like every every time I feel like I'm getting like one step forward, I'm going 10 steps backwards. Like something great happens with swimming and then something serious, like a serious family issue, like health issue happens. And I actually took that, that year off, 2014 to 2015. I had actually taken the year off because my dad obviously wasn't in any, any sort of physical health to help my mum. And so I was taking care of my mum at that stage and it was like taking care of a newborn baby. She was, she was so sick. She was so weak and I was taking care of everything. I was suddenly thrust into becoming an adult, you know, taking care of the bills, paying for everything. And I'm just like, I don't like adulting. Like, <laughs> I've told that to my mum so many times. I'm just like, I don't like adulting. Like this is so much responsibility. But in a way it, it was, it was a good learning process for me. And when mum finally had finished her treatment in late 2015, this was like December 2015, we both sat down and she was like, I want you to give it a go. I want you to train full time and see if between February and April, if you train hard enough, six weeks of hard training, can you make the qualifying times for the Paralympics? So... What were those qualifying times? Can you remember? You, you, oh, your, yeah. your specialist event was what, 50 and 100 fly, was it? Yes, 50, 50, 50 fly, 100 fly, and 100 backstroke. 
But funnily enough, it was actually the backstroke that qualified me first. And I was obviously... What was the qualifying oh. time for that? I just want to put this in context for people out mm. there. So the qualifying time for that was a one twenty five nine six for the 100 backstroke. Okay, so I just encourage people out there to jump into a 50-metre pool, <laughs> not a 25-metre pool. With one arm. Because it's uh, with one arm. <laughs> and try and swim one minute and 26 seconds for 100 metres. Well, one minute, 25 seconds yeah. for 100 metres. Just to try and put this in context. <laughs> Yes, so obviously there was a lot of hard training behind that. <laughs> For six weeks, I was just like a zombie. I was just eat, drink, sleep, pull. Like that that was it. And and at the time, because we were trying to do my – we were trying to get me to qualify with a flutter kick, but I just – like I – my the flutter kick just wasn't wasn't fast enough. So my coach actually had the idea of, hmm, why don't we – Translate your butterfly kick, but do it on your back and see how that happen, how that works. And I'll tell you what, that first month, that first four weeks of doing just dolphin kick was so much pain. Great like for the lower abs. Oh, I had abs. <laughs> I had a six pack. I had the whole lines and everything. I was just like, wow. I never thought that I would have a six pack. And even my mum was just looking at me, going, "Where did those abs come from? I never had that as an athlete." And I was like, I don't know. I guess yeah. it's all the the core work that I'm doing because. Enable for, for, for me to be able to actually cont- to swim fast on like dolphin kick on my back, I had to do a lot of core strengthening in the gym. So everything that I did was all just lower body based. It was all, it was legs. And another thing, the bum, the bum is a powerhouse. People don't realize it, but you use your bum for everything. And I, we did so. Had to switch those muscles. On had too. to switch yep. those muscles on too, and and even then, my mum was just like, "Look at your bum. You can't even fit in your jeans anymore because it's gone so big." And I'm like, um, "Mum, it's not really about that. It's more about getting more powerful in the water so I can swim fast." There so wasn't too many donuts. It was just simply the fact that you're becoming a machine. Exactly, and also just eating healthy. And because I've got such a fast, fast metabolism, me and my nutritionist worked really hard on that. We worked together. We had to time it perfectly. Like it was all timed really well. So. 30 minutes after after swimming session I would have a protein hit like I would have like chicken chicken salad with um with with a with a um a chocolate milkshake or something like that and then after the gym session 30 minutes within that protein shake again because you know, all that training I was doing was eating away at my muscles, so I had to keep maintaining those muscles. So you qualified in the backstroke. Did mm-hmm. you qualify in the butterfly? I did, <laughs> and that was great too. <laughs> Which in itself is just now the qualifying time for the butterfly was what about one minute twenty? Was it nineteen or yeah? So I encourage people <laughs> jump into a pool from two lengths for fifty, one arm butterfly with a butterfly kick. Okay, not allowed to do freestyle kick. Uh, remembering that Brawl had never swum before in her life, and uh, it's just simply remarkable. I can't even put this in context for people. You never actually got to Rio, though, did you? Because life threw you another curveball. You mm-hmm. were named. I saw a television piece on you alongside yep. of Sophie Pascoe. Mm-hmm. But what you picked up a back injury. I did, and that was from overexerting the lower back. At that time, we we were just pushing so hard for me to just you know because we were eyeing we were eyeing a medal. <laughs> That's what we were eyeing up, and we knew that if we kept pushing that dolphin kick, like get stronger and faster, that that would get me a medal. And about a week before we were supposed to leave, got a back injury, a very serious back injury, and yeah. yeah I mean, is anything? I mean, for what you'd gone through, the fact you faced death. The fact that you had to accept mm. you were going to get your arm cut off, um, you know, basically sort of nine years later or seven years, eight years later, you miss out on a Paralympic team. 
does those sort of things bother you or were you sort of living in the here and the now and it, it, and it was traumatic? It was a traumatic experience, but I've learned a lot about myself through it that no matter what life throws at me, I still keep going. And again, that's something that's a, that's been instilled from my tennis, from my tennis friends, from my friends from from high school, from my mum and dad. I've just always had that that aspect of my personality there and I just I just I I don't give up. I don't like giving up. Brian, a number of people have texted and I appreciate everybody that has texted and a lot of them are very appreciative of you coming and telling your story. Just for people, young people out there particularly that are going through this, that are facing this level of adversity, what's your message? My message to them is just take every day as it comes because you just never know when something is going to, you know, take your life away from you. So enjoy every moment that you have. Don't take anyone that you love and care about for granted because that could all be taken away from you in an instant. Now, Brian, I recently heard you speak at the launch of the AYA Cancer Network, which um, was established in 2014 to basically streamline care across the entire country to make sure that people in Southland Mm -hmm. have the same care available to young people here in Auckland. And it's all in the name of trying to improve and increase survival rates because in some areas we've lagged behind the rest of the western world mm-hmm. yes so i mean i mean i can speak from experience that back in my time like back in 2008 when i obviously we thought that the break was an infection and we didn't know that it was cancer that was just purely because there wasn't enough information going around so um now we're in that we're in a very good um position where hopefully more of the country will have more knowledge for the younger generation who are possibly going through cancer. Well, Brian McPherson, all the very best. All the best in your build-up to the Olympic Games in Tokyo. I'm sure we'll get there. It's been an absolute <laughs> privilege and pleasure having you in studio, and it's great to see your mum looking so well as well. <laughs> Thank you so much. And if you want any more information around teenager or cancer for young people, check out ayacancernetwork.org.nz.